Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast series. I have a really great guest, uh, Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, He's a biologist and an author, best known for his hypothesis of morphic resonance. Uh, We're going to be talking about his work. Uh, He's the author of several books. Uh, One older one is uh, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. Uh, science and Spiritual Practices, uh, Science Set Free, uh, many, many books. Um, so we're going to be talking about morphic resonance and uh, his background and some evolutionary biology type principles. So Rupert, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Good to be with you, Richard. Yeah, we're going to give this at the end as well, but uh, Rupert, for people that are interested, what's a website they can go to to find out more about you? It's very simple. It's sheldrake.org. Sheldrake, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E. Okay, very good. Well, I know you've been in the, uh, the science field for many years. What, what sparked your interest long ago, and how has your interest grown and progressed over the years? Well, I've always been interested in biology since the fact that since I was a young child, actually. I kept lots of animals. I collected plants. My father was a herbalist and a microscopist with a microscope lab uh, in our house. And so I've always had an interest. He was a chemist as well. Um, So I studied biology because I loved living organisms. Um, I studied at Cambridge. um, And then I began to feel that sort of breaking things down, killing everything, which is what we did, was sort of missing out on something. And so I didn't quite know what. When I did history and philosophy of science at Harvard, um, I got a bigger picture, and I went back to Cambridge, did a PhD in developmental biology with plants. Then I was teaching at Cambridge, doing research there, and later in an agricultural institute. Um, and the key thing there for me was an interest in form. How does form develop? How do embryos grow? Um, how do plants grow from seeds? How does more form come from less? Um, while I was at Cambridge, I worked on the plant hormone auxin, and I figured out how it was made and um, discovered that it was made, surprisingly, by dying cells, by apoptosis or programmed cell death. As cells break down, their proteins are hydrolyzed, um, and as the amino acids released from the proteins break down, they give a whole range of breakdown products, and tryptophan, which is one of the amino acids, um, as it's breaks down one of its byproducts is indolacetic acid which is the plant hormone auxin so auxins made in dying cells mainly wood cells as they differentiate in the leaves the veins of leaves and in the stems and in the trunks of trees and in roots Um, and and i then figured out how it moves around the plant in the hormone transport system the polar auxin system but quick quick question uh, what what's the function of auxin in a plant Oh, yes, good point, because most people are probably not into plants as much as animals. Um, Auxin 
causes rooting of cuttings. Um, when you buy synthetic rooting powder, it's a form of synthetic auxin when you make cuttings, um, if you're doing gardening or horticulture. Uh, it causes stems to grow. It causes differentiation of wood cells. In fact, it's one of the principal hormones in plants that affects many aspects of form and development, which is why it's such an important thing to study. But uh, what I, the conclusion I came to after years of work on it was um, you know, actually very successful work. I'm working out how it's made and the details of the polar auxin transport system, which is it moves from in one direction only through the plant, from the shoot tips towards the root tips. Um, it doesn't move in the other direction. There's an active transport system. And with a colleague at Cambridge, I figured out how it worked. Um, but the problem is, um, if you want to understand why the petals of, say, a hollyhock plant are different from the sepals or the leaves or the stem or the roots, this won't tell you because the, this chemical is present in all those organs and it moves in the same way in all of them. And it won't tell you why a hollyhock's different from a fern or from a Douglas fir or from a palm tree um, or a cabbage because uh, they all have the same auxin. So something else is going on, and that's where I got interested in the concept of morphogenetic fields, which are form-shaping fields, which um, the, the idea had been in, around in biology since the 1920s. Um, uh, they're like a kind of invisible mold or plan of developing organs. But nobody um, knew what they were or how they worked. And so that was the area I got in, very interested in and um, tried to figure out how they were inherited, how they worked, what they did. Um, and this is important because development in organisms is modular. You know, you get a, a stem or you get a leaf or you get a petal or you get a sepal or you get a kidney or you get a liver. You don't get a kind of vague mush of, of things that are intermediate. You get one thing or another. It's, and there's something in plant and animal development It's a bit like flipping channels on a TV set. You switch on one channel, one module of development rather than another. And these modules are really organized by morphogenetic fields. So uh, that's why I got interested in these fields. They, have, um, they seem to be relevant to developmental biology uh, but they were very yeah, mysterious I, and still are. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, where is this information contained in an organism? Has that well, been identified? It's, it's within and around the organism. You see, it's like it's fields are, by their very nature, holistic, and they're spread out in space. The magnetic field of a magnet is inside the magnet and around it, and you can reveal its shape by sprinkling iron filings. Um, the gravitational field of the Earth is in the Earth and stretches out beyond it. And the um, electromagnetic field of your cell phone is in the cell phone. It's electromagnetic in the way it works, but it also has this invisible um, effect at a distance through electromagnetic radiation through the electromagnetic field. So the idea is that these fields are not just inside the organism like a molecule that you can crystallize. You can't crystallize a magnetic field or a, a gravitational field. They're, by their very nature, spread out. So they're in and around a developing plant or animal. And they contain a shape, form, or structure, which is what molds or shapes the developing structures. Well, I've thought about this 
question and the example I've asked a bunch of people. Maybe you'd be the best one to ask, but you know, I thought about people, and there's been, according to Wikipedia, you know, 120 billion that have ever lived, approximately. And I thought, you know, almost all of them have, you know, a liver and a pancreas and two lungs and eyes, etc. And all these structures are about the same size, the same shape, placed in the body in the same relation to one another. There's always a certain number of them. You know, no one has three eyes or one, uh, yeah. three lungs, etc. How could that be? How even, you know, it goes beyond heredity. It's it, it's somewhere in, I don't know where the information is, again, because it's, it's not just inherited down my line. It's across all people. And the cells don't have to talk to each other to know that, oh, this person will grow the same way as I will grow. But the information's there for sure. Otherwise, all these people wouldn't uh, be created this way. And the detail is so fine. It's amazing. Well, that is the big problem of morphogenesis. And you could say the same of all the wheat plants or the oat plants or whatever, you know, palm trees. Um, they're all roughly the similar. But um, it, so how do they all have such a similar form? Well, the morphogenetic field idea is that they they have similar fields. It's like if you built a lot of buildings from the same plan, they'd all be uh, very similar, although they differ in their details. Um, it's like a plan for these organisms. And it's not... Uh, the, the point is that what puzzled me when I was thinking about this is how could they be inherited? Because they're not in the genes. You see, the, most people think, oh, all this information is just in the genes. It's genetically programmed. But we actually know what genes do. And what genes do is code for the sequence of amino acids in proteins. Um, and some genes are involved in regulating, switching on or off other genes whether or not they, they control whether or not they make a particular protein. Um, so what genes do is make proteins. It's like build, uh, they produce the materials out of which organisms are made. But the materials alone are not enough. I mean, if you dump all the building materials for a house on a building site, um, that doesn't give you a house. It just gives you the materials. You need the architect's plan to get the house as well and the energy to put it together. And so I think what the genes do is enable the organism to make the right proteins, but it doesn't give the shape. You see, your arms and your leg for, for legs, for example, have exactly the same proteins, exactly the same genes, exactly the same chemistry of the bone and so forth, but they have different shapes. And I think that's because they have different plans and they have different morphogenetic fields which give them different plans, just as you could build two houses out of the same kind of timber and cement and bricks and stuff. And um, uh, you could have the same building materials, but you could build houses of different shapes. Um, and that's how organisms work as well. Well, any insight into um, where this information comes from and it is contained and when an organism is done growing, the cells know, okay, done, we're done, it's enough. And when a wound happens, at least in certain creatures, the cells still know how to fix that wound and approximate the previous shape. You know, in people, it's not very good, but uh, other mm. animals. But again, how does it... Uh, and if you look at left leg versus right leg, they're very similar. It's like a, a chiral arrangement. That's right, uh, mirror images. Well, what I'm suggesting, you see, is that these fields are within and around the organism, just like a magnetic fields within and around a magnet. Um, the fields are invisible, like... 
all the fields of physics, quantum fields, gravitational fields, electric fields, magnetic fields, they're all invisible structures in space and time. And I think that the morphogenetic field, say, of a leg is sort of like a, put it in the simplest possible way, like a kind of invisible mold or shape of the leg that shapes the developing structure. And when the leg's reached its final form, according to the mold it's growing into, then it stops. But the mold is still there. And if you wound the leg or wound the skin, for example, you get wound healing. It heals, it regenerates. In the case of a flatworm, if you cut the flatworm into lots of little bits, each little bit has a complete field around it and can regenerate a complete worm. And that's a little bit like cutting a magnet into bits. If you cut a magnet in half, a bar magnet, you don't get one north pole and one south pole. You get two small magnets, each with a north pole and a south pole. Um, And it's in the very nature of fields that they're holistic. You can't have a bit of a field. You either have a whole one or you don't have one. You can't have a slice of a gravitational field or a magnetic field or a morphogenetic field. They're intrinsically holistic and integrative. Um, That's the nature of fields in general, not just morphogenetic fields. Now, where they come from uh, is the problem I wrestled with when I was working on this at Cambridge. They've got to be inherited because obviously organisms are similar to their ancestors and there's an inheritance principle going on. Uh, The genes can't explain it because they just explain the proteins and the control of protein synthesis. And the key insight I had when I was working on this is that there's, um, if there is a direct connection across time, if there's an influence jumping across time from the past to the present, um, uh, then uh, these fields could inherit the form of past organisms. All humans could be influenced by the billions of past humans who've grown two kidneys, two eyes, etc., And the morphogenetic fields contain a kind of memory of their form. Um, And the process that I postulate, uh, hypothesize, does this is what what I call morphic resonance. Morphic means form, uh, from the Greek word morphe. And resonance is based on similarity. Uh, Similar vibratory patterns of activity uh, resonate across time with subsequent similar ones. So each organism draws on a kind of collective memory of the form of its ancestors, of the past members of the species. They all contribute to the morphogenetic field. And because it's a kind of averaged memory, the morphogenetic field isn't a kind of sharply defined field. It's a probability structure. It's kind of a bit fuzzy at the edges, just like quantum fields are, um, because um, they're probabilistic. And I think morphogenetic fields are probabilistic too and work through influencing probabilistic processes. In other words, processes that um, are not rigidly determined but which uh, can go slightly one way or the other as quantum processes do. There's a kind of average, but, uh, well, it's the same as true of biological populations in general. Every wheat plant in a wheat field is slightly different from all the others, but they have a kind of average form. Well, how, how have you imagined that you would test this to see maybe from where this information is held? You know, is it held by the genes? Is it held somewhere else in the cell? I mean, where do you uh, where do you see it would be good? Well, I think it's held in the field, you see. And um, the, um, the field, like other fields, is not 
a material object. You know, the, the gravitational field's not a, a material object. It's in and around the Earth, but it's not held at a particular place in the Earth. It's what shapes the Earth itself. And I think that the memory, which is given by morphic resonance, um, influences these fields. And this theory is testable um, because if you, um, the, the same theory applies to the organization of behavior, like instincts and when animals learn things. Um, and the theory makes a number of very startling predictions, uh, which is why it's a testable hypothesis rather than a metaphysical speculation. Uh, for example, if you train rats to learn a new trick in New York, then rats of the same breed should be able to learn the same trick quicker in London and uh, you know, in Melbourne, Australia, just because the rats have learned it in New York. And that may sound outrageous, but there's actually evidence from experiments with rats and other animals that if some animals somewhere have learned something, the same kind of animals somewhere else can learn it quicker. So that's okay, well, the you, kind you mean, of... You mean the rats that are not descendants of the first rats? or descendants? That's right, not descendants of the first rats. They, descendants of the first rats also learn it quicker. And that could be an epigenetic effect. Um, we now know that inherited characteristics can be... Um, that acquired characteristics can be inherited. In the 20th century, this was a huge taboo. Um, and when I first published my ideas on morphic resonance in the 1980s, the big problem was that people said this is impossible. There can't possibly be an inheritance of acquired characters. It's just not allowed. Uh, now, it's commonplace. It's one of the most exciting areas of biology, epigenetic inheritance. Um, and this rat thing uh, could be due to epigenetic inheritance if they're descended from the same rats. But actually... Even rats that haven't been descended from the same rats learn the same thing quicker. So it's, it goes beyond epigenetic inheritance. Well, is there a difference in the epigenetically inherited uh, ability versus the non-epigenetically inherited ability? And again, has this been tested? Can it be tested? Well, yes, it can. Um, the, the tests, um, the tests can, can be done using um, almost any biological system. Um, plants or animals, um, it hasn't been tested yet because epigenetics is, you know, a kind of growth field where people are um, exploring all sorts of possibilities. But one example, for example, in epigenetic um, research, uh, are studies on inheriting fear in mice. I don't know if you've come across this, uh, Richard, but um, there were some studies a few years ago published in Nature, called Inheriting the Fears of Fathers. And in these studies, what they did is they took male mice, they gave them, uh, they exposed them to a, a chemical smell, acetophenone, um, which a synthetic chemical they wouldn't normally encounter. They gave them electric shocks. And so very soon after a few, after a few trials, these mice were paralyzed with fear when they smelled acetophenone. They then took sperm from these mice, artificially inseminated females, who therefore never met the fathers, and tested their children. And their children and their grandchildren showed extreme fear reactions when they smelled acetophenone. They'd inherited a fear which their fathers and grandfathers had acquired. 
And this can't be explained in terms of cultural inheritance, the males telling the females, watch out for acetophenone, or anything like that. There's a, an inheritance of something that's been learned. Now, the assumption in epigenetic research is this can all be explained by molecular changes like methylation of the DNA or um, modifications of histones or other components of chromosomes um, that must be a molecular basis. What I'm saying is there may well be a molecular basis for some of it, but I think that basically uh, quite a lot of this effect depends on morphic resonance. And to tease these apart, you'd have to do special experiments that haven't yet been done. Um, I'm working at the moment uh, talking to various people in labs in Britain and elsewhere to try and get these tests done. Um, the problem is that morphic resonance is an extremely controversial subject, and a lot of people back off at the, at the you know, they feel if they do something controversial, it will damage their career. Um, I try to tell them that actually if it works, it would enormously boost your career. This would be a massive discovery of enormous significance. Anyway, the problems at the moment are not so much scientific, technical, or even to do with funding. They're to do with the sociology of science and the way in which it's difficult to do controversial research and uh, without uh, damaging your career. So you're saying uh, people are afraid to do the research required to figure this out? Uh, well, some people are, particularly academics. It's, much, it's easier to work with people who are working with commercial firms and companies because you know, if you're working in a, in, a, in a business, all that works is, all that matters is, do you get something that works? Does it work? And can you make a product? Whereas in a university, you're worried about, will your colleagues think that this is you know, scientifically correct and are you breaking any rules or offending any dogmas or that sort of thing. It's much more fearful. People are, uh, are afraid of doing anything very unorthodox on the whole. That's true. Um, so this exists in animals, in plants. Um, how far down does it go? Do you think it exists in the biofilms? Maybe not individual bacteria themselves, or maybe so. Oh, I well, know. I think so. Yes, yes. Actually, I think it exists in crystals. I don't think it's just to do with life. And um, if you make a new chemical for the first time and crystallize it, uh, you've got a new form coming into being in nature. There won't be a memory of that form in nature. And it might take a long time before it crystallizes, and indeed it does take a long time usually. And then once you've made these crystals a few times, it should get easier all around the world because of morphic resonance from previous crystals. And that's actually what chemists find. New compounds generally get easier to make as time goes on. Even unwanted compounds, contaminants in, say, pharmaceutical factories. Um, ritonavir is an example, an AIDS drug. They were making uh, Abbott Laboratories were making ritonavir, everything was going fine, and then suddenly a mutant form of the crystal showed up somewhere. And suddenly they were everywhere, and they couldn't get the original crystals back. A new fashion had sort of taken over. It was a, um, a polymorph. Even when crystals exist in several different forms, they're called polymorphs. And um, the, this is a big issue in the pharmaceutical uh, industry. Um, you get these polymorphs turn up and then they spread. Um, some of it's because of the transfer of seeds or nuclei from the crystals, but I think that uh, a lot of this is due to morphic resonance. 
so it's it's not so it's not just in in um, biology. I mean, this phenomenon I think happens all the way through nature, even at the um, you know at the atomic level. Um, Bose-Einstein condensates are um, peculiar forms of matter at low temperatures, you know, like 0.5 degree above absolute zero. Uh, a lot of compounds form a Bose-Einstein condensate where they behave as if it's a single quantum system. They become superfluid, superconductive. Um, they take on completely new physical properties. And since in nature the background temperature of the universe is 2.7 degrees K above absolute zero, uh, anything below that is likely to be a new process in the universe. So if you make a Bose-Einstein condensate, and then you keep making the same condensate in different labs or even in the same lab, what I'm suggesting is that even there, it should start forming quicker as a result of morphic resonance. It's a kind of habit in nature. Morphic resonance gives rise to habits. And what I'm suggesting is that the so-called laws or regularities of nature are actually more like habits, depending on a kind of memory within nature. Well, for living creatures, maybe you could say, all right, uh, the beneficial new forms or new knowledge is kept in the uh, you know, non-beneficial stuff is thrown away. But what about in non-living systems? Like once things happen, are they preserved just because everything's preserved or no? Well, they're preserved in the sense that any habit that works will get repeated. Um, if it's something that's non-viable, you know, if I think all of nature works on a kind of Darwinian selection principle. You know, there are all sorts of new unstable chemicals could come into existence, but only the stable ones become sort of regular habits in nature. And so things only become habits through morphic resonance if they last, if they can survive in the conditions in which they exist. Um, so there's a kind of natural selection going on all through the natural world in this view. This happens uh, both in nature, well, not in nature, well, in living things and non-living things. But in living things, again, is it based on beneficial adaptation and the, the negative stuff is discarded? Or is it just everything is kept and because of adaptation going on, the beneficial things are more likely to be kept and preserved? I mean, is there any mechanism for knowledge to disappear? Uh, no, I think that the once the, the things are there, it remains there. I, I mean, for example, I should imagine the world is haunted, as it were, by the ghosts of extinct species like dinosaurs. If a dinosaur egg came into being now, it could resonate with the fields of extinct dinosaur species, a little bit like Jurassic Park but it wouldn't just be in the DNA. The form would come through morphic resonance from past dinosaurs. But what's happening um, normally is that only patterns of activity that are viable get repeated. So if you have animals learning a new trick, some of them may learn a new trick that's not very helpful and not many of them would learn it because they'd die out. Uh, but ones that learn a new trick that is helpful, would uh, there'd be lots and lots of those because it would help them survive and that would become more habitual and more likely to occur in the future. So it's really natural selection is working on a kind of quantitative basis. Um, but in the human realm, for example, if uh, the morphic fields of languages, each language would have its own field shaping and structuring its form and pattern. Um, if there's an extinct language, and if you had somebody who could begin to speak that, they might um, pick up 
that language which is still virtually present, but um, without anything to tune into it. So I think that everything's potentially present. It's like a principle of conservation of information. Well, okay. If information appears because someone right now has figured out something, um, I may not know about it. I mean, there's many things I don't know about or anyone knows about. So I may therefore not use it. So the information may you know, not benefit me at all. But if I do somehow run into it, use it, um, again, maybe it's a negative thing. And maybe therefore that leads me not to use it more than once. So it falls into just such general disuse that maybe its effect uh, ends up going away. I don't know. It's cleansed from the system. It seems like if, if this were all to build up, um, it would just be so such a clutter that I don't know how an organism would uh, would function if more and more and more was available to it over time. Well, it would only tune into that which is relevant. You see, if you if if um it would only tune into the patterns of activity that are relevant to what it's doing. If a rat's confronted with a new trick, escaping from a water maze, which I was talking about earlier, and escapes, then other rats in the same situation would escape more easily. If someone invents something completely new in one part of the world, and someone else somewhere is thinking about a similar problem, they may pick up what one person's discovered um, at a distance. And I think that's one reason why we have so many examples of parallel inventions and discoveries, where similar people invent similar things around the same time. And in the course of evolution, I think it's why we get parallel evolution. In Australia, the marsupials um, have kind of parallel forms to placental mammals in other parts of the world. Uh, So it's called convergent or parallel evolution. Um, and I think morphic resonance underlies processes like that, which are otherwise rather mysterious. So you think they go through life and non-life and across different species of life, across the life-non-life barrier? I mean, do living things inform non-living things and vice versa? Like how pervasive well, is it? it? Well, it works on the basis of similarity. So if you were... You know, if it's if it's a crystal of hemoglobin, it would resonate with previous crystals of hemoglobin. Now, it would. There are some crystals which occur inside living organisms, um, and there, there'd be a kind of morphic resonance between life and non-life in the sense that there are crystals. Bones are made of crystals, for example. Um, but it, it's based on similarities. So. If you have a bird, like a a goldfinch, for example, it would resonate with previous goldfinches. It's not going to resonate with salt crystals because they're too dissimilar. It's only similarity that's at work here. And that means that most of the morphic resonance is within a species because members of a species are more similar to each other. And then if you have varieties within a species, for example, sheep dogs compared with Pekingese, Pekingese dogs would resonate more with previous Pekingese and pick up their habits, and sheep dogs would pick up the habits of previous sheep dogs by morphic resonance, which is one reason why sheep dogs are much easier to train to um, round up sheep than uh, other ra- ra- other kinds of dogs, um, because there's a kind of collective memory in that variety. So similarity is the key to this whole process. This whole process, at least, that's what I'm suggesting. Well, even within um you know, a given species, when you say similarity, um, would a higher level of similarity be within the same family where there's a heritable component to this? You know, like my... Yes, 
my mother my mother was a great archer so therefore i'm even more likely to be a great archer than just you know someone else that's uh, not in her lineage yes i think similarity is the key and if you have two people who are very very similar the most similar being identical twins what this theory predicts is that if you separate them soon after birth they'd continue to resonate with each other so if one learned something the other's more likely to learn it and uh, in fact, we know that there's tremendous similarities between identical twins separated soon after birth, sometimes down to ridiculous detail. You know, like calling their kids by the same names. And the usual conclusion from that research is people say, oh, well, it just proves it's all genetically programmed. Um, actually, genetic programming is much less than most people assume, as we now know from the missing heritability problem. And I think identical twins, far from being the acid test of nature versus nature or genes versus environment are actually uh, largely showing morphic resonance effects. And if you then ask the question, who in the past was most similar to me, then the answer has to be me. I'm more similar to me, you're more similar to you. And therefore, you have resonance from your own past. I have resonance from my own past, which is the most specific resonance working on me which is, I think, why my form remains more or less similar despite turnover of chemicals and cells within the body. And the most radical and perhaps shocking aspect of this hypothesis is that um, this will also explain memory. Um, normally, people assume memories are stored inside brains as physical traces or engrams uh, through modified synapses, phosphorylated proteins, possibly RNA molecules, etc., um, but I don't think the brain's um, a memory storage system like a video camera. I think the brain is more like a resonating system like a TV set that tunes into the past on the basis of similarity by morphic resonance, and the memories are not stored inside the brain. And, you know, for most people who've been brought up on the idea it's got to be in the brain, this is a shocking and very unfamiliar idea. But when you look at the evidence, as I do in my book, Science Set Free, where I have a chapter on called Our Memories Stored in Brains, um, then uh, what you find is that the attempts to find memory stores in brains over decades have been extraordinarily unsuccessful. And um, I think it's because they're not there. I think that, they, um, that they, they, the brain is working on it as, as a tuning system and that memory depends on morphic resonance. You know, what's interesting, though, is if I think about myself, um, this tells me, and this is my own theory I'm making up, but the structure of a given organ in my body gives it access to that particular niche or set of abilities of this morphogenetic field. My brain has access to it because of its particular biology and the arrangement of molecules to a part of the morphogenetic field, but my liver has a different access because of its, again, its, its construction. Do you think that form partially dictates your ability to access um, what's out there? Yes, very much so, because it's what gives similarity. Your liver's more like previous livers in, in all sorts of other people, ancestors, humans, and indeed uh, similar to uh, livers in other mammals when it comes to cell structure and function. Um, and the fact it's a liver makes it resonate more with other livers because it's more similar. Um, and so your brain resonates with other brains because it's more similar. 
um, than your other organs. So I think there's sort of resonance with the whole body and the whole form, but also resonance at these uh, the level of organs and tissues and cells. Um, um, so you've got all these different levels of organization in our bodies, and they're a kind of nested hierarchy, one inside the other, you know, cells in tissues, in organs, in organisms, and then organisms in societies like flocks of birds. And at each level, you've got organizing principles and a kind of resonance going on, depending on similarity with similar systems of that kind. So um, how long have you been working on this? And any experiments that uh, you've conceived of that maybe you just you haven't been able to do for whatever reason, but you think would be uh, great ones to do to prove out some of these concepts? Well, yes. I mean, the, for example, um, teaching animals to learn something and seeing if other animals of the same breed learn it quicker. For example, you can work with fruit flies. You can get fruit flies. You can train them to be averse to certain chemicals. You can let them smell something and they get an electric shock and then they avoid that in the future. And then if you have similar fruit flies that are not descended from those that you've tested and you test them, they should be more averse to it. They should avoid it more because of the experience of the previous lot of fruit flies. And the more you do it, the more averse other fruit flies should become. So that's a simple experiment that can be done with fruit flies in a lab. Um, if anyone's listening who's got a lab and is able to do these kinds of experiments with fruit flies, uh, any learning system in any animal, Cynorhabditis elegans, the nematode worm, they also have learning, and you could do experiments with those. Day-old chicks, I've already done some with day-old chicks that showed this kind of effect. Um, these are all ways of doing tests. Uh, it's possible to do these tests also it with cell cultures. If you have cell cultures or microbes or yeast and you make them averse to a particular kind, if you make them so they evolve to deal with a particular kind of poison or heat conditions, um, then it should make other ones of the similar, the same variety um, more able and to adapt to those conditions more quickly. And again, those are experiments that can be done in the lab fairly simply, using fairly simple apparatus. The problem isn't cost. The problem is finding people with the motivation to do the tests. And anyone who does these could make a vast breakthrough with enormous significance. So um, if anyone's listening who thinks they could do these tests, I'd be very happy to hear from them, and they can contact me through my website, which is sheldrake.org. Uh, just perhaps one or, one, one or two last questions. Um... Why, though, would, let's say, learning to read, uh, why does this the process of learning to read have to happen over and over and over in people? Why wouldn't, over time, the uh, morphogenetic field of reading keep improving incrementally to the point where people pick up reading really quickly? It seems like, for instance, there, a lot of people never learn, or the ones that do, it just takes a long time and they struggle. Well, that's a good question, and I think there are two or three different answers for it. One is that if you look historically, the number of people who've learned to read over the last century is staggering. It's billions. I mean, if you go back two or three centuries, the vast majority of the human population were illiterate, um, even in Europe. Um, so the, the, there has been a massive increase in the number of people who've learned to read. 
And the fact that a lot of children can learn to read at the age of five or six or seven is um, rather remarkable. It's true that some who can't learn to read and they're dyslexic or they just never get it. But the, if you look at the big picture, it's remarkable how many can learn to read when that wasn't part of our hunter-gatherer ancestry. Uh, writing itself was only invented about, what, 5,000 years ago. And even then, there were a lot of illiterate cultures right up until the 20th or even 21st century. There were whole cultures that based only on oral learning. I think the second answer is that um, there are so many different languages and so many different scripts that if a child's learning to read, it's not as if they're getting one clear signal about reading by morphic resonance. The, you know, there's lots of people learning to read in Mandarin, in Chinese characters, in Tamil alphabet, in the Arabic alphabet, in the Hebrew alphabet. There's, there's not a single um, clear signal. The languages are very varied. I think when we come to something that everybody uh, does, or humans do, um, like speak, then practically everyone does learn to speak. And that's, again, something our ancestors didn't have, but um, I think they'd learn quicker still if there was just one language. Um, When it's just one single skill everyone has, like walking, um, then practically everyone learns that. Um, They have to, I mean, babies have to mature enough to be able to do it, but um, practically everyone learns to walk um, at a very young age. So I think that Uh, And when you look at animals, if you look at at spiders, for example, baby spiders know how to spin webs without ever going to school or being taught by an adult spider. Um, The instincts of animals happen just automatically. And I think that's because they are getting a kind of, they're inheriting the habits of their species. Well, it sounds like there's many components to this. There's a inheritable component. There's a, you know, monkey see, monkey do component. Yes. It sounds like you're saying there's a component where just by being a member of the same species, um, there seems to be another component for just being a living thing versus a non-living thing. Um, it seems to be like, I don't know, at least six, seven, maybe even ten different uh, levels of this access to morphogenetic space. Yes, that's right. There's, it's, it's, it's got different levels um, and so on. But In fact, one can break it down when designing experiments to relatively simple experiments that should, in principle, give clear answers. Well, very good. Uh, You gave you our our website, childrake.org, as the best way for people to contact you. Um, Do you see any experiments on the horizon being done, or do you see people resisting this to the point where it may never be done or not for a long time? Oh, no, there are several on, I'm talking at the moment to several researchers who, you know, may be doing experiments within the next few months. I mean, the conditions are getting better now than they have been for quite a few years, partly because a lot of people realize the present model in biology is broken. You know, the, the missing heritability problem, the rise of epigenetics has undermined all the sort of certainty in the 20th century about neo-Darwinism, genes do everything. That all seems hopelessly naive now. And we're moving into a new era, and those people are much more open-minded than they used to be. So I think the prospects for uh, experimental tests of this hypothesis are, are getting better all the time. And I'm hoping there will be at least two or three this year. Well, that's the, well been, it's been a great call. I really appreciate you coming. And uh, I hope to find out more about, uh, about this and, and see it at play. So thank you for what you do. 
Well, thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 